Let me invite you now to stand for our scripture reading, and we're looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 this morning. So Romans 3, 9 through 20. And as we look at this text, it's a continuation of the anthropology, the biblical view of our hearts. And it's a very challenging section because it challenges us with the reality of sin. And you cannot understand the greatness of the gospel unless you understand first something of our sin problem. And so we began this section in chapter 1, verses 18, and we're getting close to the light at the end of the tunnel, which is in chapter 3, verse 21. But draw your attention now to God's Word, Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray, give us a greater appreciation of the goodness of the gospel message seen in great and grand contrast and relief to our sinful nature and our sin problem. Lead us in a greater appreciation of all that Christ has done to us and for us, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Imagine for a moment if you received this Christmas card. I'm going to read to you the sentiment in the Christmas card. And just imagine that this Christmas you open this card and it reads this way. Please accept with no obligation, implied or implicit, our best wishes for an environmentally conscious, socially responsible, low-stress, non-addictive, gender-neutral Celebration of the winter solstice holiday practiced within the most enjoyable traditions of the religious persuasion of your choice or secular practices of your choice with respect for the religious secular persuasions and or traditions of others or their choice not to practice religious or secular traditions at all. And for a fiscally successful, personally fulfilling, and medically uncomplicated recognition of the onset of the generally accepted calendar year 2022, but not without due respect for the calendars of choice of other cultures whose contributions to society have helped make America great, not to imply 
that America is necessarily greater than any other country or is the only America in the Western Hemisphere and without regard to the race, creed, color, age, physical ability, religious faith, choice of computer platforms, or college sports preference of the wishy. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? And it's a whole lot of nothing. This politically correct Christmas card doesn't really say anything. It says something and then it takes it away. It ventures something, but then it backs up from that in an attempt to please everyone. And I read that Christmas card to you as a way of showing you the contrast between that way of speaking and the way the Bible speaks. Theologians say that the Bible, they use a word for this, the Bible has clarity, and the word they use to describe that is perspicuity. It's a weird word that I don't think we use, you don't see a lot of perspicuity these days. But what it means is that the Bible tells the truth and that with the Holy Spirit in connection with the ability to hear and read God's Word, you will understand and get the message. That's what it means when we say that the Bible is clear. The Bible speaks, the Spirit works, and we are called to be content with that. But many of us have embraced what we could say is an improper view of sin. A more accurate view of sin leads us to a greater appreciation of what the Savior has done for us. If we minimize sin, then we at the same time minimize what the Savior has done for us. That's why we adopt and accept what the Bible says about sin. And sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, including our actions, the good that we leave undone, the inner thoughts and secret, secrets of our heart that violate God's commands. This is all descriptive of what sin is. And you see with clarity, especially in verses 11 through 18, what the Bible has to say about our sin problem. So minimize sin, you minimize salvation. At the same time, you don't want to maximize sin. And maximizing sin has to do with this idea that we only broadcast how sinful we are and neglect what Christ has done for us. Now the temptation is to say, well, we need a balance. I'll get to that in a minute. But if we maximize sin, and I've heard this called worm theology, it essentially makes us worms. And what we're doing there is we are ignoring the biblical truth. Truth like Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, where we read, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. To maximize sin by creating a kind of worm theology, what that does is that minimizes who we are and the identity God gives us in Christ that we are forgiven, we are beloved, we are sons and daughters of the living God. 
the answer is not in between. In other words, we're going to half minimize sin and we're going to half maximize it and try to be in the middle somewhere. No, the answer is totally different than that. The answer is to have a biblical view of sin, embrace the truth, the full face of who we are before God. And the answer is to embrace as well the full truth of what Christ has done for us on the cross. So it's a both-and proposition, not a one or the other, or a somewhere end up in between. And we need the clarity of Scripture. We need the perspicuity of Scripture, which looks full face into the horrors of sin and what we have lost in the garden and the glory of salvation in Christ. So two points today. The first is that none is righteous. None is righteous. And you see this section begins in verse 9 with a continuation of the point that Paul has made earlier in chapter 3. What then, are Jews any better off? And the answer is no, not at all. And this goes back to last week's sermon that the Jews are not in their privileged position, able to do enough saving good to rescue themselves. The Jews are in a privileged position. Why? Look at verse uh, 2. They have the oracles of God. The oracles of God have been entrusted to them. This is an advantage to them, but it is not a salvific advantage. It is not an advantage where we could rest our salvation on. Paul's other emphasis here in Romans, and really as you consider the entire book of Romans, is to unite both Jews and Greeks, those from different ethnic religious backgrounds, into one in the church. So he is working on that, and we're going to see that come up more in chapters 9 through 11. But Paul writes, continuing this idea that the uh, advantages we have are not enough to save us. He continues in verse 9, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, under the power of sin, needing to be rescued. And then what follows is a quotation from several passages, uh, 10 passages, or at least allusions and quotations here in verses 11 through 18, all from the Old Testament, of making and proving this point that all are under sin. That all are under sin. And we get that, look at the end of verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. The idea here is that we cannot repair or do well enough, or do enough good to save and rescue ourselves. All of us, no matter your advantages of saying being raised in the church, or uh, having a, uh, being brought up in a Christian home, whatever advantage you have, all of us have the same starting line, because all of us are descended from Adam and Eve, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. This is the truth about us. 
And this speaks to uh, our total depravity. Total depravity is the T in a Calvinistic uh, summary of doctrine. Uh, the TULIP is the acronym we use to remember these truths. And the T is total depravity. And when we read, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Total depravity has to do with we are not as bad as we can get. That's not total depravity. Total depravity is every aspect of our being is touched, impacted, influenced by sin, by the fall. You can kind of think of it this way. Uh, if you have an oil stain in your driveway, you can clean up that oil, but the image of the oil still remains. You can wipe it up, but somehow that driveway is stained with oil. And you can, when you leave today, look, uh, when you pull out of your parking spot, look at the place you were in. You will see an oil stain remains. Maybe not from your car, hopefully not, but from someone else's. And that idea that though Christ has taken care of our sin, we are still influenced. The vestiges, the remainder of that stain of sin on all of humanity impacts us so that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot correct what is wrong with us. Total depravity, every aspect of our being is touched, impacted, influenced by the stain of sin, and we cannot fix it by our Selves. And so you might, this comes against, as we think about the truth of who we are and what are we going to do, we're going to embrace fully what the Bible says about us, and that means we are sinners, and that means that in Christ He has taken care of our sin problem. We're going to embrace both, and to embrace both is to maximize what Christ has done for us and to maximize our need for the gospel and for Jesus. If indeed none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. How come in Bernie, Texas, if I go down Main Street and I stop a stranger and I ask them, are you a Christian? They will tell me yes, and I will say, what, why is that? And they will say something to the effect of, I'm a good person. I try really hard. This kind of moralistic salvation is something that is very much alive here in the buckle of the Bible Belt. So much so, I would say sometimes you have to get people lost before you can see them embrace salvation. And what do I mean by that? Get people lost. Have them accept what's at the end of verse 10 and verse 11 here. Look at verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. How many people do good? No one does good, not even one. The perspective here is a reminder of how holy God is and how big our offense is to a holy God. It is not correctable on our own. We have a total inability to correct it on, on our own. So whenever someone tells you a Christian, always have a follow-up question. Ask them, why do you say that? Why is that the case? And if you hear something like, I grew up in the church, 
I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as these other people. What that is, is that is a salvation by self-righteousness, and the Bible knows nothing of it. If you look in verses 13 through 18, this is really a further Old Testament explanation, a quotation of several passages that back up what's at the end of verse 10 and verse 12. These specific actions and things that people do which reveal their true character. So here we sit. We either accept this idea, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. We either accept that or we deny it. To, de to deny it is to truly embrace a view other than the fact that God is holy, and it is to reject a biblical anthropology. If we embrace uh, our true sinful nature and the stain that has been left in our life, we have to be careful because it can lead us to despair. So you can't look at your sin without also looking at what the Savior has done for you. Uh, there is an individual in, the, in our denomination uh, who passed away in the late 90s, and he was famous for a saying, and he shortened it to cheer up times two. And this was the saying. He said, he would tell people, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever imagined. And then he would just kind of let it drop, this pastor that's in our was in our denomination. He would have this saying, cheer up times two. Cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever imagined. And he would let that drop, and then he would follow it up with this. Cheer up, you are more loved than you ever dared hope. Cheer up times two. You're a worse sinner, I'm a worse sinner, than you ever dared imagine, but cheer up, you are more loved than you ever dared hope. Part of how you know the gospel then is in the context of what is actually broken with us and what is wrong with us. Christ has done the ultimate. This is why Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, he is the preeminent sinner. He, growth in the Christian life is a growth, a dual growth. It is a growth in the apprehension of your sin before God. Not your actual sin, but your apprehension of your sin. And it is at the same time a growth in your apprehension of what Christ has done for you to take care of your sin problem. And so to understand something, and you know, we really live in an age here where there's a lot of questions about identity who we are, the value of an individual, that is most fully answered in the gospel. That though we are tragically sinners, we are rescued and saved by God who loves us. And he conveys to us through justification, which is the declaration that we are made right. Come back next week to hear more about that from uh, later in chapter 3. This idea of justification is, Christ doesn't just save us from hell. He conveys to us 
a new identity, takes care of our sin problem so that we are sons and daughters of the living God, precious in his sight because he rescues us. And so one thing about how you approach the Christian life is don't just talk about what's wrong. Don't just talk about what's wrong in the world. Don't just talk about what's wrong with you, what's wrong with other people. These are some of our favorite topics, aren't they? Talk about what's right and how Christ has made it right. Yes, talk about what's wrong in the world, but talk about what Christ is doing and how he is making all things new. And one day, Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so, yes, we are broken, but we are made whole. Yes, we are sinners, but we are in Christ, sons of the living God. Yes, we are weak, but we are made strong by his grace. So no one is righteous. There's a call. We need to accept that truth. And the second point here is no one is justified by the law. And this is in verses 19 and 20. Now we know that, reading from verse 19 here, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law of God is a way that God establishes his standard, which no human being can meet, no matter uh, how good you are or the good things that you do, you will never earn your way, you will never fulfill God's law. Uh, and we read in verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This idea that the law, the good things that we are called to do, uh, that God has set forth, completing those will save no one. Let that sink in. Verse 20, how many people will be justified in his sight through the law? Zero. No one. And so the obvious question then is, well, what good is the law? And the law, here in verse 20, shows us our sin. And that's an important function of the law. Not only does the law show us our sin, it restrains evil in the world. It shows us the beauty and character of God. And the law also reveals to us God's design and plan for our life. The law was never meant as a means to save others. Now, i got to make a confession to you, and people always, when pastors use the word make a confession to you, that gets everybody's attention. But the, the, you know, for a long time, you know, I was a new believer. I didn't have any kind of, uh, I had very little spiritual background, did not grow up going to church. And when I became a Christian, I started thinking Old Testament people Think about this logic. Old Testament people, since they existed before Christ, were saved by law-keeping. If they kept the law well enough, then they were basically saved. That's, that's what I thought. How wrong I could have been. How wrong I was to think that. The law was never meant as a means of salvation. Instead, the law 
as I mentioned, restrains sin, shows us God's character, shows us the way to live. And the use of the law here in verse 20 is that it brings knowledge of sin. How do you and I know the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, except God's law shows it to us? If indeed the end of verse 10 and 11 are true, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, why would I be the great arbitrator between what's right and wrong? People are not a reliable indicator, but God's law is. God's law is. And so the law brings us the knowledge of our sin, causing us to humble ourselves, realizing we cannot save ourselves, casting ourselves on Christ. So we go back to that question, well, how were Old Testament people saved? They were saved the same way we are, by faith. And that's the point that's made in Romans chapter 4, and we'll get there. But look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham had a forward-looking faith. He trusted God, he relied on God's promises, and he had this forward-looking faith. What direction does our faith go? Is it, is it forward-looking? Well, to some extent. But our faith looks backwards to the cross. Abraham's faith looked forward to the fulfillment of God's promise to make him a great nation. Just as our faith looks backwards to the cross, Abraham's faith looked forward. Now, Abraham did not know in his lifetime, he knows now, but he did not know in his lifetime all that we know and how God's promises would be fulfilled, but he still had faith. We now can fill in the gaps. But the faith that Abraham had saved him, and it is a forward-looking faith, so to be justified in the biblical sense is based on your belief, your faith in Christ and what he has done for you and not on how you and I perform the works of the law. And that's the important point that Paul is making here. No one is righteous. And the second point follows, if no one's righteous... No one can be justified, can be saved by the things that they do. I sort of imagine uh, for a moment, imagine with me, uh, do you have in your neighborhood bulk trash day or large item pickup? I don't know if you have that in your neighborhood or you drive through an area that um, has that. I have a great uh, smoker somebody put out on a barbecue smoker that uh, I got one time. But usually, what is it at the curb? It's trash, isn't it? It's trash that's so big, it doesn't go in the 96-gallon waste wheeler. It has to. That's what you call those things. Instead, you have to put it at the curb. And one of the neighborhoods I drive through, whenever it's bulk trash pickup time, the piles start accumulating. And you know what I have never seen, and you haven't seen it either, is someone out, neighbors out on bulk trash day, bragging about their pile. 
look at my pile. I've got an old mattress, a bunch of stumps, and this lawnmower that I can't get started. And the other person says, well, I have this pile of books and all these things that I thought I needed. No one does that. No one brags about their pile on bulk trash day. And no one brags about it because it isn't worth anything. You know, Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah 64, 6 is the passage which says our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. It doesn't say our deeds are filthy rags. It says our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Our righteous deeds to a holy God, we pile them up. It's like bulk trash day. And we think there's value in those. And we think for a moment, oh, I'm the exception. I'm the exception, all of humanity. But I'm the exception. And then we run into verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, I'm the exception. But it says what? Not even one. When we embrace that which the Bible says is true about us, the cross grows and what Christ has done for us grows in our estimation. We admire our own righteousness, but let me tell you this, God doesn't. God doesn't admire that. And part of the astounding truth of the gospel is somehow our bulk trash pile is made acceptable to God in Christ. That the cups of cold water that we offer and the good things that we do are somehow made to have value before a holy God only because Christ has merited it. This gives us great humility, I hope, to remember no matter how good we are doing, it is never enough. I hope not only does it give us humility, but it helps us look with compassion on other people to understand that the only reason I'm rescued is not because of what I've done, but because of what He has done for me. We work for God's glory not to earn salvation, but because of it. Because this salvation is so awesome. Because we know something of what we are saved from. It allows us to live honestly and to embrace the fact that, yeah, it's worse than you think. Try that next time someone's criticizing you. Say, you don't know the half of it. I'm worse than you think. But you know, we're more loved than we can imagine. And the part that sometimes is, sometimes is missing in our Christianity is this idea that we're more loved than we could ever dared hope. That the salvation we have in Christ, the security He has granted to us, the fact that we are justified and forever His only in Christ, we don't celebrate enough, do we? 
And part of the celebration has to be the embracing of how bad it is. That it is. That we are worse than we think. But at the same time you admit that. Because otherwise you'll end up in despair. You have to embrace the truth. We're more loved than we ever dared hope. So is it worse than we think? Yes. But we're more loved than we could ever imagine. And we need to celebrate that. And that's one of the reasons why we worship. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that indeed you would help us to grow in our estimation of what is wrong, that we, that might be the doorway and the pathway that we fully embrace that which is good and right, namely what Christ has done for us on the cross, how we are adopted forever into your family. Remind us to celebrate. Remind us to celebrate that which is right. And help us to embrace what the Bible says is true about our hearts, our sinful hearts. And at the same time to embrace that which Christ has done for us. Give us a tremendous love and mercy for fellow strugglers that we all together might come to Jesus and appreciate and worship and follow because of all that he's done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.